Good morning. Okay, glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles, uh, especially this morning, uh, and turn with me to Acts, the book of Acts. So if you got your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you find the book of Acts. That is where we'll be. We'll be uh, starting in, in chapter 1, we'll make our way into chapter 2, into chapter 3, into chapter 4, uh, into chapter 6, and into chapter 14. So we will be hunkering down this morning in the book of Acts as we continue our sermon series, Comfortable Christianity. Christ has not called us to, to be comfortable, but to be committed. And this morning, we have, uh, we'll continue to take a look at uh, the third thing that we see in the New Testament that God calls his people to be committed to. We've seen that he's called us to be committed, first and foremost, unto himself. We saw last week that God uh, calls us not only to be committed to himself, uh, but to be committed to his church. And of course, this morning, we will see that God calls us to be committed to prayer. Acts chapter 1 is where we are going to be. Let's pray. And then we'll, uh, we'll get to work. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, again, it's a privilege to be here. We ask that your spirit would be among us, teaching us, instructing us, illuminating our hearts and our understandings of your word as we look at particularly um, the prayer life of the very first church that you gave birth to through your Holy Spirit, these people that were born again as they believed in the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, for our salvation, and came to seek after you both individually and collectively collectively in prayer. Lord, we have much to learn from this church. And so we pray that not only would we learn the things that you want us to learn, but we pray that you would become the people that you want us to become. And that is a prayerful people. And so stir, I pray, powerfully in our hearts, drawing us unto you, we ask in Jesus' name. And that God's people said together, amen. Well, there is a gentleman by the name of Charles Finney. And if you know your church history, then you've probably heard this name before. Charles Finney was one of the key figures in what was known of as the Second Great Awakening here in the United States in the 19th century. In his ministry, um, it's not an understatement to say virtually touched and impacted every aspect of life in this country. In the seven years in which Finney was an evangelist here in the States, um, we have records of about 500,000 people uh, converting to Christ. So just think about that for a second. Seven years of his ministry, 500,000 conversions. That is staggering. And so we have to ask the question, what can we attribute the amazing harvest that God accomplished um, from his preaching? Well, there are probably a multitude of reasons, but if you were to ask Charles Finney himself about the the power that he had in his preaching and the harvest of souls that God reaped through him, he himself would point to one man, one man in particular. This man's name was Daniel Nash. Daniel Nash. See, when Finney was invited to speak uh, on a crusade in a particular city or, 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 or township, he would always have um, Nash arrive two or three weeks early to that town or that city. And Nash would uh, go, he would rent a room at a hotel or stay with some, some Christians, and he would start praying. He would start praying for Finney. He would start praying for, uh, for the movement and for the evangelism, for the gospel. And he would pray. 
And Finney himself notes in his journal one such occasion. He said uh, that there was once a woman who was uh, running a hotel, a boarding house, and she came to him with a bit of concern. And she said, Brother Finney, uh, do you know a man by the name of Mr. Nash? See, he and two other men have been at my boarding house for the past few days, and uh, they haven't eaten one bite of food. She said, I opened the door, and I was concerned about them, and I, and I peeped in because I could hear groanings coming from their rooms. And so I, I looked in, and I saw them face down on the ground. Would you please come to see if they are okay? And to this, Finney said, no, that, that won't be necessary. They're simply uh, praying for revival with a spirit of perseverance and travail. In fact, there is a, a gravestone in a cemetery near the Canadian border, and it's Daniel Nash's, and it simply reads this way on his tombstone. Daniel Nash, pastor, laborer with Finney, mighty in prayer. You know, I think when we look at the life of the early church portrayed for us in the book of Acts, it is an inescapable observation that it, like Daniel Nash, was committed to prayer. In fact, just a cursory reading throughout the book of Acts, you see the word pray or prayer or prayer simply being offered to God um, 34 times throughout the book. It's scattered pretty much throughout every chapter. You can't really go two or three chapters in the book of Acts without seeing the early church praying in some sort uh, or or, or fashion. In fact, uh, the book of Acts has 28 chapters, and there are only eight chapters that have no specific reference to prayer. And so it's no understatement to say uh, that prayer permeates the book of Acts, and it permeated the life of the early church. One commentator by the name of Warren Wearsby suggests that there is a lesson for us to be learned from this fact. uh, He says this, in almost every chapter in Acts, you find a reference to prayer. And the book makes it very clear that something happens when God's people pray. And so here's what I'd like for us to do. We can't look at all 34 references in the book. That would take us forever. But I have about five references in the book of Acts that I want us to hone in on, to focus in on. And from those five passages, we will see five points of prayer. Five points of prayer, things that we can learn from the prayer life of the corporate gatherings from the early church. So let's begin where Acts begins in chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open in front of you, I hope you do, take a look at verse 14. Here's a bit of the context. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his great commission to the apostles, right? He says, uh, he says, you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses starting here in Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and into uh, the ends of the earth and wait for him, right? Wait in Jerusalem for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. So here the, uh, the, the disciples are in the early church, about a hundred of them. And uh, they had been given this vast, aggressive, worldwide task. But they were also told that they were powerless to go uh, go about doing it, right? They couldn't fulfill it themselves, so they had to wait. They had to wait for power on high. So roughly starting in verse 14, we see them doing that. We see them waiting for the Holy Spirit's coming. So here's a question that I have. What did they do to fill their time? There they were, a worldwide mission uh, ahead of them. What did they do? 
did they sort of prep up their testimonies? Did they practice their sermons? Did they sort of scheme and plan which district of, of Jerusalem they would begin with? What were they doing while they were waiting? Well, Luke tells us one thing for certain that they were doing. And we see it in verse 14 of chapter 1. Luke says, They all together joined constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so here we have the early church waiting upon the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They gathered together constantly in prayer. But, but the Greek is a little more specific. The NIV, NIV translates it in prayer. But, but more literally, it says they devoted themselves to the prayer. There, there's a definite article there. The prayer. This sounds kind of odd in our minds, but likely what was going on is that Luke was referencing a specific time of prayer. Most likely what happened is that the early Christians would gather when the Jewish people would gather for prayer. They were Jews themselves. There were regular times appointed for the Jewish people to pray. And so the early church likely followed that pattern. In fact, if you want to jump to Acts chapter 3, if you will, I'll show you one specific instance where this is likely happening. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. So we, we see a little bit earlier that not only did the early church gather at specific times for prayer, but we see, here we see two apostles. They're going up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer, and they are praying together. And all of this leads us to prayer point number one. From the very beginning, the early church prayed together regularly, constantly, but the indication is that they did it um, at designated periods of time. In other words, they were intentional. They were intentional about coming together as a church for prayer. Prayer point number one, corporate prayer takes intentionality. I think that is what the record of the early church here in Acts is pointing us towards, that not only did they pray, but they prayed specifically, at specific times, with regularity. Praying together in the early church took leadership, it took planning, it took intentionality, it didn't just happen. And friends, if we want to be a praying church like they were a praying church, then the same is needed for us. We need to be intentional in our planning, in our commitment, in our preparations, whether that's on Sunday mornings or one night of the week or Sunday nights, whatever that looks like for us, and more to come on that, there needs to be intentionality. Friends, the churches that pray the most are the churches that set regular patterns of prayer for the life of the church. And so I'm asking you to pray for me. And I'm asking you to pray for our elders because we need to do that. We need to do that at grace, regularly, constantly, together. I don't know what time of day that is. I don't know what day of the week that is. But this I do know. A regularly scheduled time of prayer like the one in the early church is utterly needed for a church to be like the early church. The story is told of some early African converts to Christianity. They were born again. The gospel reached them there in Africa. And they immediately, as all Christians do, uh, set their hearts to prayer in God, both corporately and individually. 
And as history tells us that these early African Christians reportedly would go sort of off into the thicket and each man or woman would sort of choose their prayer closet, if you will. That's where they would go and they would go to that place in the thicket over and over and over again um, in prayer. And then, of course, what eventually happened naturally is that there would be sort of paths, right, through the grass and in the thickets that would become well-worn. Because these Christians would go to the same places over and over and over again. And as a result, then if one of the believers began to sort of, well, let's say go to the prayer closet a little bit less often, it was apparent, right? It became apparent to the others. And they would sort of gently remind themselves uh, in this way. They would say, brother, brother, the grass grows on your path. The grass is growing on your path. Friends, I wonder... If the grass is growing on our path, both individually as Christians and especially corporately here at Grace, I wonder if we have allowed sort of the grass to become a little too tall, if you will. That needs to change. It's going to change. Prayer point number one from Acts chapter one, verse 14. Corporate prayer takes intentionality. But not only that, if we continue to look at, uh, uh, at that verse there in verse 14. We learn something else, because again, the NIV is not quite literal. The New American Standard in chapter 1, verse 14, reads this way. These all with one mind. And I point out that translation, because it's more literal. That all of these Christians gathered together, these all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So so what is the scripture teaching us about corporate prayer in the early church and in our church? Well, not only should it be intentional, but these words are important. The early church, when they came together, they were devoted to praying together, but they did so, the scripture uses this phrase, with one mind. It speaks to purpose. It speaks to the purpose of their praying. They did so unified in purpose with one goal. Now, what was their goal? What united them in prayer? It had to be the commission that they were given by Jesus, right? Jesus had given them this commission. Go into the world, right? Make disciples of all the nations. You will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem and throughout all the world. That was their mission. And so as they prayed, they not only prayed regularly, but they were um, driven by the gospel. They were driven by the purpose of spreading the gospel, and that influenced and guided and directed their prayer. See, when a church loses its sense of mission, then it will lose its sense of prayer. When a church loses its sense of mission, its sense of purpose, it will inevitably lose its passion for prayer. See, what we see in the Bible and even in our own experience is that there seems to be this unbreakable bond between the mission of God, God's people, and the prayers of God's people. When the church is honed in to the Great Commission, it's honed in to great prayer times. But when it loses its focus and its passion for the lost, its pursuit of prayer gets lost. So brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, what does our corporate prayer life or lack thereof indicate to us and about us as a church regarding the centrality of our mission to make disciples of Jesus and to be his witnesses? The scriptures 
show us that these early disciples clearly cared about the mission of Jesus. And because they cared about the mission of Jesus, what did they do? They prayed. And not only did they pray individually, but they prayed together. They prayed together. I wonder, I wonder if our prayer life is lacking because our mission is lacking. Because we don't care as much as maybe we once did about reaching the lost. Henry Ironside, the great Bible teacher and commentator, put it this way. He said, when God is doing something great, he moves the hearts of the people to pray. He stirs them up to pray in view of that which he is about to do. So they might be prepared for it. And that, my friends, I think is exactly what is going on in Acts chapter 1. God is stirring the hearts of his people to pray because he's about to do something. He was about to do something in that day. Friends, do you believe that he's about to do something in our day? Could he do what he did back then today? Please say yes. Yes, he can. But he uses the prayers of his people. See, corporate prayer not only is, was intentional and is intentional, but it is driven by the purpose of the church. And that's just one verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Let's move to the second set of verses, and we find it in chapter 4. So move from chapter 1 with me to chapter 4, chapter 4 in the book of Acts. There in chapter 4, we get a story. And I want to sort of fill in the gaps of the story. We'll be specifically looking at verses 29 and 31. It's a prayer. Um, But let me just sort of get us caught up, if you will. The next mention of the prayers of the church occurs here in chapter 4. So, the story begins in chapter 3. You can, you can glance there if you want. I'll just try my best to summarize it and sort of get us caught up to where we are in chapter 4. Back in chapter 3, Peter and John, right, heal a lame man. They do so in the temple courts there in Jerusalem, and they explicitly do it in the name of Jesus. What we get then is Peter's second major sermon in the book. Now, if you remember his first, it went really well, right? Lots of people became Christians. 3,000 people converted and became followers of Christ. Now is his second sermon. He preaches a sermon, and most of the religious leaders are there. And instead of uh, getting all all sorts of conversions, um, it it lands them in jail, right? Uh, So in some sense, it didn't exactly go the way it did earlier. But this is going to turn out for the glory of God. So... There they are, the apostles, and they're in jail at the hands of the Jewish authorities. The next day, as you make your way into chapter 4, they're brought to trial. They're brought to trial, they're questioned, and then the religious leaders say, don't speak of Jesus anymore. That's what they they tell them. Do you think that's going to fly? No, it's not going to fly. In fact, they say, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard about the the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the religious leaders sort of meet again and they threaten them, right? They, they threaten, if you, if you do that, we're going to do this, that, and the other. But they don't really harm them. And the, then eventually they let them go. So the apostles have now begun to receive opposition. The early church is now sort of targeted, if you will. And so the apostles go back to the church and they tell the church what has happened And most likely what they told the religious leaders, no, we're not going to stop speaking the name of Jesus. And what happens then is this beautiful prayer. If you look in your Bible, you see it. It starts in verse 24, and it runs through verse 30. 
Let me just summarize the beginning of the prayer. First of all, in their prayer, they acknowledge God as creator. They said, God, you're the creator of all. You're the ruler of all. And then in their prayer, they even say that the opposition that both Jesus faced by these same religious leaders and the opposition that they as a church are now facing is actually a fulfillment of God's plan. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and now it is coming to pass. So, so the, the logical movement of this prayer is something like this. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything that is happening to us as his church. Number two, his sovereign plan includes us as Christians facing opposition, 25 through 28. And then number three, they say, we should then pray that God would give us bold speech to speak of Jesus despite of that God-ordained opposition. And that lands us to verse 29. So let's take a look at the tail end of their prayer, starting in verse 29. So they prayed, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I love what the church father Chrysostom said about this incident. He said, the place was shaken, and that made the Christians all the more unshaken, right? Because as, as they prayed, what did God do? God gave them boldness in their gospel witnessing. And it leads us to prayer point number three, which is this. Corporate prayer is a response to gospel opposition. Isn't this what is happening in the story, right? The early church faces opposition, and what is their initial sort of knee-jerk Response. What do they do? Do they whine about it? Do they, are they bitter about it? What do they do? They pray, right? They turn to the Lord in prayer. Because corporate prayer, is a, it's a response to gospel opposition. Friends, persecuted Christians pray. Fair enough? Persecuted Christians pray. Sort of like when you go to the doctor or you take your kid to the doctor and they want to test his reflexes or her reflexes, right? What do they do? They sit them on the chair and they get that little doctor's hammer, right? And then what do they do? Bonk, right on the knee. And what happens? Boop, right? They're They're checking the reflex, right? Friends, the reflex of the persecuted church is to pray, right? They turn upwards to God. Automatically, this story is told by one woman. She, she said that her and her husband were attending a church in Kentucky. They were just visitors there, observers on vacation. And I'll, I'll just read her little line here. She said, quote, We were attending a church in Kentucky, and we watched uh, an especially verbal and boisterous young child being hurried out, slung under the arm of his irate father. No one in the congregation so much raised an eyebrow, she wrote, until the child captured everyone's attention by crying out in a charming southern accent, Y'all pray for me now. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, so is the response of the persecuted church, right? They pray. I have to wonder if the anemic prayer life of many Christians 
and the anemic prayer life of many churches in America is due to the fact that we face very little gospel opposition. Don't get me wrong. I think it's coming. It's coming to America, I believe. So as we face that coming opposition as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we see a culture turning away from Christian values and forces being ramped up in opposition to the church and to the gospel, friends, we should take heart. We should take heart. It was that way for the first church. And what did it do? It drove the first church to their knees. And that's a good thing, right? I wonder if it will drive us to our knees as it drove them to theirs. But not only from this passage do we see that corporate prayer is a response to gospel opposition, but what we also see is that corporate prayer enables us to face gospel opposition. Do you see that? They faced opposition, they turned to God in prayer, and then how did God respond to them when they went to him in prayer? He enabled them, did he not? He emboldened them. So not only should we pray when we face it, but we should pray anticipating that God will enable us more, that there will be sort of a channel of divine intervention. I think it's important for us to see here, they didn't pray for judgment upon their persecutors. They didn't pray for freedom from it, but strength in the midst of it, did they not? And I wonder how we as American Christians, how we typically think and how we typically pray when we face opposition as they did. The first church was filled with the Spirit's power. They were filled with boldness as a response to corporate prayer. Friends, what might happen if we pray together as they did? What extra measure of the Spirit of God might come upon us in power? What boldness What boldness might we now be missing out on if we prayed as they did? Brothers and sisters, we need God's help if we want to be effective witnesses of Christ in our world, in our families, in our schools, in our businesses, and in our communities. So we need to seek the Lord's help. Again, Warren Wearsby, I think he's spot on. When he says prayer is not an escape from responsibility. It it is our response to God's ability. He says, true prayer energizes us for service and for battle. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 4. There are so many more places we could go, but in the time that we have remaining, please turn with me to chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, so flip to the right just a few chapters here. We have seen some examples of the early church praying, and we see a wonderful example in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. What I'd like to do is read verses 1 through 17. We'll we'll hear the story uh, as a whole, and then we'll make some observations, one more prayer point. So let's just read it together here. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison... And now we get this, right? But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Keep that in mind. 
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and uh, sentries stood guard at the entrance. Just of note, if I was on death row, I probably wouldn't be sleeping. Did Peter know something we didn't? We'll find out. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel or ghost, some translations say. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Reasonable enough, right? Authorities were likely after him. And described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. It's a reading of God's holy word in Acts chapter 12. So, this is a a fascinating story, right? It has so many applications but here's the final prayer point that we get from this, from this story. Corporate prayer moves the hand of God. Is that not such a clear application from this text? Corporate prayer moves the hand of God. So their leader, the early church's key leader, Peter, is imprisoned for the third time now. Herod, seemingly bent on his murder. What does the church do in response? They turn to its only available weapon, its only real weapon. Throughout the night, they called a prayer meeting, and seemingly they were praying throughout the night. They believed, to some degree, that God, through their prayers, could affect Peter's release. And in response, what happened? God does it. He sends an angel to rescue him. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan preacher, reportedly said here, he wrote that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Isn't that a great image of the movement of God? So he gets to the door where the Christians are praying, and almost comically, they don't believe it's him, right? It's meant to be funny, I think. It's as if they believed that God could free him, but maybe they actually didn't think that God would free him, or at least maybe not so soon, right? Friends, throughout Scripture, be it Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel, or Moses' prayer for water in the wilderness, or Abraham's prayer to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, or Hannah's prayer for a child, or Hezekiah's prayer over the seas of Jerusalem, time and time and time again, we see that prayer moves the mighty hand of God. 
Now, let's not be mistaken here. Not that God is coerced, not that he is manipulated by our prayers, but somehow in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he has made it such that our prayers actually matter, that they actually matter. And in them, God's power is released. I like what A.C. Dixon in his book Evangelism says. He says, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. He says, nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But then he says, but when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. And that's exactly what these early Christians were doing. So, beloved, do we want to see God move? Do we want to see him do things like he did for Peter in miraculous or even mundane ways in our lives and in the life of our community, our family, our church, our country? Then what should we do? We should pray, should we not? Together, regularly, expecting the hand of God to be prompted by our prayers. So I want to close with a powerful call to prayer in the words of Robert Lee. He says, Knowing that intercessory prayer is our mightiest weapon and the supreme call for all Christians today, I pleadingly urge our people everywhere to pray. Believing that prayer is the greatest contribution that our people can make in this critical hour, I humbly urge that we take time to pray, to really pray. Let there be prayer at sunup, at noonday, at sundown, at midnight, all throughout the day. Let us pray for our children, our youth, our aged, our pastors, and our homes. He says, let us pray for our churches. Let us pray for ourselves. Let us pray for our nation. Let us pray for those who have never known Jesus Christ and his redemptive love. Let us pray for moral forces everywhere and for national leaders. And then he he closes by saying, let prayer be our passion. Let prayer be our practice. Friends, let it be said of us that prayer is our passion and that it would be our practice together. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your redeemed. Break our hearts for our prayerlessness. Break our hearts for how little we avail ourselves of your power, not only personally, but corporately together. And Lord, stir in the hearts of your people and begin a movement of prayer so that the practice of prayer, like it was done in the first church, would be like it is even today. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn from them, that prayer would be our knee-jerk response, that we would pray for your emboldening for our witness, that it would be purposed in your mission, that it would be regular and intentional. And we pray also that in response, as you have done over and over again, we pray that you would do great and mighty and powerful things, even beyond our expectation or hope, as we humbly pray together. We ask it in the great name of your son, Jesus, and God's people all said, amen. Thanks, guys. See you next week.